So uh, let's yeah, let's just get started. So first, first we have uh, our group of ladies, the ACCW from Assumption. They made the supper, so just thank you so much. Yeah, it's just, it's been really great to see different groups help out and contribute to the meal, and this is the second time they've helped, so anyway, super grateful for that, just to see different, from our different parishes even, uh, helping out, so a, a great gift. Um, yeah, then just the last thing, um, so this is part four, and uh, can I get someone to just shift the little thing so that it's centered on here? It's, literally, it's really easy to turn, that's why it's messed up. So if you just... No, the whole the the whole desk. There you go, just like that. Okay, so um, if this is your first time here, uh, we're we're very grateful to have you here. But just know, like, um, this is the fourth part. So there's there's a link here. Uh, I really encourage you, if this is your first time, to go back and listen to the other four parts because if if you don't have that, uh, this this part's not going to make sense. Um, really, it's it's not going to make sense to you. So. Uh, real encouragement. Uh, well, please stay, of course, stay. Right. Uh, but but uh, just like if you walk away thinking like, oh man, that was too much, that, that you need to go back and, and uh, fill yourself in. So anyway, um, okay, great. Let's let's pray uh, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for rescuing us, for saving us. Uh, we thank you for going to war for us and setting us free from the kingdom of death, the kingdom of sin. We praise you, Jesus, uh, for your goodness, for your fierce love for us. We ask for a continued gift of surrender to you, uh, that you would continue to overwhelm us as we complete the gospel uh, this evening so that as we go about our lives, we may always have this firm foundation rooted in you and in what you have done for us and for the world. Open our hearts and our minds this evening and give us your Holy Spirit so that what we receive may be received with joy and gratitude, uh, that we may respond appropriately to what you have done. Pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, so our fourth part of the Kerygma, which we'll review again in just a minute, but our response to what God has done. That's what we're looking at this evening, is, is what is our response? So our one goal uh, that we've kind of consistently had, turn this thing on here. Our one goal that we've consistently had is to build the foundation. So tonight, our main goal is to complete the foundation, right? So, so the foundation, once it's laid, then you can begin building. So tonight we're going to complete the foundation, which is the, the, the foundation of the gospel, the kerygma, uh, the proclamation of what God has done in the person of Jesus. But then we also want to kind of think about how we're going to build. And as we think about how we're going to build, to understand that, that it's a lifelong building process uh, and that none of us has ever done building, whether we're 90 or 95 or whether we're you know, just new in the faith or whatever it may be, none of us has ever done building. And that as I set out to build on top of the foundation, which is my life with God, uh, that I can continue to build all the way up until the point that I die uh, and then present my building to the Lord, uh, the temple where, where God lives here on earth. And then I go to the eternal temple uh, to worship God in heaven. 
So anyway, th those are our, our, our main goal and then our sub-goal. Uh, so just a review uh, of the four parts of the kerygma, uh, which hopefully you, you remember that by now, but if you don't, here's the last little bit of a review. So the goodness of creation, sin and its consequences, God's response to our sin and our response to what God has done. And this, I think, is just a really important point, that what we're talking about tonight comes last, not first. Right, that Christianity, my life lived with Jesus, your life lived with Jesus, is meant to be a response. It is not a matter of whether I can earn God's love or by my actions that I can make him love me any less. He has already done it all. He's already given me every grace. He's already given me everything I need to be set free from the kingdom of sin. And it is only after that that I then respond to him. Sometimes I think we can have this mentality that, like, well, if I just do the right things, then God will love me. Or, you know, if I mess up, then he's going to love me less. And that's not true. He has already proven his love by going to the cross and dying for you. And you can't make him love you any less. You can't make him love you any more. Now, it's true. We're going to talk about it. We have to make a response. Absolutely. But to recognize that this doesn't have any determination on whether Jesus died for me or not. He did, in fact, die for me. It's just now a matter of whether I'm going to recognize that and respond appropriately. So another way we can talk about this is this. So uh, we, we can have these, these four bullet points, or we can just have four simple words. Created, captured, rescued, and response. So I think just to point out, like, we review this every week for a purpose. One is that so it could sink into our minds and our hearts in a real way. But then also, the hope is, as we'll talk about, the hope is that you'll be able to share it with people. And maybe you can't present it in exactly the same way that I presented it. And for that matter, you're not ever going to have five hours, generally speaking, to like share the gospel with someone. But maybe you might have five minutes with someone. And so maybe you, you can say something about each of these points. You know, So if you can remember these four words, created, captured, rescued, and response, and then you can think, like, okay, what could I say about that one? Well, I could say, you know, like, God is good. This is what we believe. God is good, and that everything he makes is good. And, and that, that everything, he, everything that exists, he made it all. And that the highlight of everything he makes is me, really, the human person, and you, the human person, that you're his favorite creature. Like, that's, it's incredible. This is, this is who he is. And you could, of course, get into talking about the stars and, you know, all these things, but, you know, maybe you don't have time for that. And so, like, you just sort of stop there, and it's just like, you know, consider the universe and how amazing it is. And, and yet, most amazing of all, God says, is you. Incredible. And yet, because we're so amazing, because we're, we're his favorite creatures, there's another creature that hates that we're his favorites. And so this other creature, the devil, Satan, goes to war against us because he's envious of us. And so he tries to do everything he can to steal us from following God's ways because if we, if we don't follow God's ways, then we can't receive everything that God has in store for us. And so this is what he does. He deceives us. He makes us think that God isn't good. He makes us think that the people around us aren't good. He makes us think that we ourselves aren't good. And so what happens? We're stuck in this place of doubt and unclear thinking, and so we rebel against God. And when we rebel against God, it's like we hand ourselves over to a captor. And so we ourselves are captured, and we're stuck in this place of darkness, and we need someone to rescue us. 
And this is God's response to that, is that he does, in fact, send his son Jesus to rescue us, to go to war for us against the one who holds us prisoner. And this is what Jesus does on the cross. He, he, he goes to war against this creature, Satan, and he destroys him in a rout. And then what's left is for us to respond and to ask that question, like, how do I respond, right? So, like, that's took, what, two minutes, three minutes, four minutes, something like that, right? So to, to just start to think of this, like, think of these four words. What could I say about them? One, as I let them sink into my own heart and my life, but then... If I have any chance to share this with someone else, what could I say about those things? And again, this is, this is maybe one of the benefits of modern-day technology, that if you need you know, to go back and listen, you're most welcome to, to go back and listen. I've, so, full, full disclosure, a lot of the material that I've presented, I heard from somebody else. And I've listened to it like 10 or 15 times. In fact, if you were to listen to the other person that I heard this from, some of the stuff you would you'd be like, that's like word for word. What? <laughs> because to me, it's is like this is so good, and I can't help but share it. But I want to share it as good as what I've heard it, and so like this is what I do because it's, it's just so valuable to to build this foundation. So anyway, so that's that's the purpose of all this review. Uh, another form of review, we, we ask this in question and answer form, right? Why is there something rather than nothing? And we see that the answer to that is that because God, who is incomprehensibly good and powerful, has freely created everything out of the abundance of love within his being. That's why. Because God loves, and so in his love he creates, and he does it freely. Why is everything so obviously messed up? Well, that is because man and woman, the highlight of God's creation, chose to rebel against the Lord and sold themselves into slavery to sin, bringing chaos into the world. Rather than order, now there is chaos. Relationships are broken. The world itself is broken. That's why everything is so messed up. And what, if anything, has God done to fix the mess? Well, we can talk two parts about this that we reviewed. He's provided for his people throughout history, even before Jesus. He has provided for them throughout history. And this culminates in the great gift of Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, who sets us free from spiritual slavery by his blood. And Jesus went to war against the enemy of our race, the one who, who tries to, to deceive us and pull us away from God, and Jesus wins in a landslide. We've been transferred into the family of God and his kingdom of light, and he has brought an end to the rule of Satan and invited us to share in his great campaign of sabotage and rescue. I love that line, the great campaign of sabotage, where we are actually invited by Jesus to participate and share in the mission to undo everything the enemy has done. Just incredible to think about. That leaves us with this last question. How should we reasonably respond to the action of God and Jesus? And this, to me, is a really difficult question. Because, in my mind, you either get it or you don't. And if you get it, then there's just no answer that's really needed because it's like, of course. And so then maybe this is like you go home and thinking like, well, yeah, you just told me everything that I knew. It was like a waste of an hour. If you don't get it then the answer that I'm going to give is going to seem a bit too much. And so you're going to walk away thinking like, that was, that, was, that was too intense. 
And so no matter what, I think everyone's going to go home a little bit dissatisfied tonight. <laughs> Including me, this is the first time I've presented on this session. So, so normally I present the sessions a little bit differently. This is the first time I've presented and I tend to be a little perfectionist. So certainly I'm going to walk home dissatisfied thinking like, oh, I could have shifted this around. So we're all going home dissatisfied, but it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Uh, we're going to make it through. So anyways, we can try to formulate an answer. So to get to an answer, I think it's best for us to try to look at two parts. So the first part is to look at something uh, more from like an abstract point of view. So what, is, what does it mean to be abstract? It means to exist in something that is existing in thought or as an idea, but not having a physical or concrete existence. So something, something that we can sort of hold in our minds and entertain in our minds as we consider what is the reasonable response to what God has done in the person of Jesus. So to do this, we're going to look at a few different things. We're going to look at scripture passage, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. We're going to look at some song lyrics of a song that I particularly enjoy. We're going to look at another scripture passage, Romans chapter 12, Rome, uh, verses 1 and 2, and then a couple more. So lots of scripture tonight, I guess. Uh, Luke chapter 13, 22 to 24, and then maybe a, a similar, a very similar passage from Matthew chapter 7, 13 to 14. And then from there, we're going to move from the abstract into the practical. Uh, so what does it mean to be practical? It means to be concerned with the actual doing or use of something rather than with theories and ideas, right? If we just let it to be a theory or an idea, then that ultimately leaves us without making a real response. But what God has done in the person of Jesus demands a real response. And so we want to get practical about this. And so as we do this, we're going to give an example that I love to talk about uh, with a cave. We're going to look at the rest of the passage from 2 Peter chapter 1. So we looked at 3 and 4 up top. We're going to move to the next few verses in 5 through 11. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 4 to 7 and then Acts chapter 2 verse 42. So first, to look at the abstract and the theoretical. So as you can see, there's a lot that we want to try to cover uh, this evening. So to look at the theoretical. So first, taking at uh, as something of a... A launching point, this, this passage from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 4. So Pope St. Peter, our first Pope, says this. Jesus' divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, that through these you may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of passion and become partakers of the divine nature. So in my Bible, there's a little asterisk next to uh, that last phrase, become partakers of the divine nature. And in my Bible, I flip to the back then and I see the explanation it gives is this, a strong expression to describe the transformation of human nature by divine grace. Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. To become part, like to, again, this gets back to the, the very first session. What is God's goal for your life? To become like him which is just incredible if you really let yourself think about it. The, the universe that from any given point on earth, we can look out and see 46 billion light years out into the distance. 70 sextillion stars, 70 with 21 zeros at the end. And he wants us to become partakers of that divine nature. It's just amazing. It's a strong expression, right? Like, very strong. So, so this, sort of, this sort of leaves me with this question. So all of Lent, I've had this big question on my mind, and I've, I've not been sure where, where to ask it, and I've tried it in a couple of different situations, and it didn't really land very well. 
so then I was preparing this, and it just this seemed like the, the right thing to ask. So this is the question. It's very simple, but it's, but it's, it's this. What if it's true? What if everything we've been talking about is true? And I know some of you are thinking like, yes, Father, of course, right? But I know for some of us, maybe we're hearing it and it sounds really nice and we're just not fully convinced yet. But to sort of like, we're not getting to that, whether I believe it or not. But just to ask the question, what if it's true that you are in fact God's favorite creature? What, what if it's true that you were in fact enslaved to a power that you could not compete against? Sin and death. And what if it's true that in response to that, the Father provides everything, even his own Son, the one whom he loves, who then went to war for you, individually, for you, even to the point of dying, all so that you could be set free from sin, so that you wouldn't have to fear death so that you wouldn't have to fear anything, so that you wouldn't have to sin and rebel against him? What if it's true that he claimed you as his own close family member because he wants to share everything that he has with you, even his own divinity and glory? What if it's true that you matter to him in this kind of a way? What's the appropriate response to that? Could it be anything other than a wholesale surrender to him? Where you say to him, this can't be real. What, whatever you want. Like, what, whatever you, like, how could it be anything other than a complete turning away from sin? Because I don't have to live there anymore. I don't have to live in that place of misery and doubt and clouded thinking anymore. Like, I don't have to live there. So why, if this is the offer, if this is true, like, why would I even bother living there? How could it be anything other than running toward the offer because it's just too good to be true? I think about, like, so I think about, like, Walmart on Black Friday. <laughs> right, what do people do? People wait outside of Walmart for hours. And hours, and then when the doors finally open, what do they do? They run to the offer. Even to the point of not caring about other people because they can't afford the thing they want to buy because, unless the offer is there. They can't afford but to run. And so for us, right, like, where are you going to find an exchange rate like this? That he wants God who made the universe and the stars and the stars are so big and and he made like the order of the world and he made you and and just like to think about how how all the things in your body work at any given time and like he wants you to share in that with him huh. how do you turn how do you say no to that but instead it's like whatever you say what, what, the promise is that I get to become like him. That's the promise. And it's a promise from a good father. And so I just, like, I gotta say yes. Because where else would I go? Let's look at a, a couple examples, I think, that can, that can maybe begin, begin to help us. 
So a few years ago, I, I read uh, an article online. There was a guy who went to a garage sale and he bought a bike for $5. It seemed like a really crummy bike. It seemed like it was broken at flat tires. The, the pedals seemed like they were broken. And after he bought it, he found out that it was a bike that was used by a guy named Floyd Landis, who won the Tour de France a bunch of years ago. He was a rival to Lance Armstrong. So this bike was actually worth like $8,000. That's the kind of deal that we're talking about here, but better, but better. Now imagine for a minute, imagine, imagine that this guy who bought this bike had only $5 to his name. That's all he had. And so to buy the bike would have cost him everything that he had. We would laugh at him for not spending the $5 because he'd be like, bro, you don't know what you're buying. Like, you, you have more than $5 actually to your name because if you spend the $5, you have thousands of dollars in return. This is the kind of deal that we're talking about, but better. better. Another example, Jesus talks about this in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, A kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Imagine for a minute, imagine before we move on, finding the treasure. Don't forget about, like, don't think about your conscience for right now, right? We're not concerned about, like, what's the right thing to do. Just imagine, imagine you're in that field and you find the treasure and you're just like... Right, you're going to cover it up as soon as you can and try to make it look like everything's normal in the field. You're going to go and just sort of, like, you get, like, act calm, act, act normal. You go and you get everything that you have, right? You might even sell a couple of things, you know? And you go to the owner of the field and she's like... I'd like to buy your field. <laughs> he's like, okay, what's what's the price? And he tells you, and he's like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll pay that. It seems like a fair price, you know, whatever. Right, imagine the joy. You have to, like, stop to try to contain yourself because if you if you really let out the joy, the, the owner of the field's going to be like, what's the deal here? And then you buy the field, right? You spend, every, like, you give everything, all that you have, to go and buy the field because you know that you're buying something that's worth far more than anything you own right now. That's the kind of joy that Jesus is talking about. Another one. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Right. So if, if you're a merchant in search of fine pearls, that means you have an eye for fine pearls that no one else has. And so again, it's the same kind of thing where it's like, you're just sort of like rummaging through and you see the one and you're just like, no one else sees this. Oh, I think I'm going I'm to buy this. Can you just set it aside for right now? I got to go and take care of some things, right? And it's like, you go and sell everything because this pearl, right, is worth more than what you have. And so you're happy to spend everything that you have for this pearl. That's the kind of thing we're talking about here. So getting back to our question, right? What if this is true? What price wouldn't be worth it? Name something that would not be worth it to sacrifice for the return of becoming like God forever. I can't think of anything. There's nothing. That, but, but then it's, it's like an infomercial. But wait. <laughs> it gets better. It gets better because I can imagine some, some people asking, in fact, I know someone, I'm, I'm talking to someone right now who's asking this, this very question. What if I have to sacrifice more than the person next to me? 
For me to receive this and to follow God's ways, it would require a serious sacrifice on my part, and that just seems impossible. Fair question. Someone else asked the same question. Peter. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19, Peter says to Jesus, Hey, we've left everything and followed you. What's in it for us? What does Jesus say? He says, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man shall sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, the apostles. And everyone, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold, that is a hundred times more, and inherit eternal life. But many that are first will be last and the last first. Do you hear this? That in fact, the greater the sacrifice, Jesus says, the greater will your reward be. There are people in this room who could actually have a greater opportunity of reward than I could have because I haven't had to sacrifice as much as maybe some of you have to. There are people in the world who if they would just simply follow Jesus and give a wholesale surrender of themselves, yes, would have to make a real sacrifice. But what does he say? A hundred times more is the reward, the treasure that awaits us in heaven. Another person could ask this question. What, like, that sounds great, but like, what if I just don't actually have very much to sacrifice? Like, I don't, I don't have much. And so like, I, I'd love to sacrifice, but like, it just doesn't seem like there's much there to give. Another great question. Jesus also approaches this in the Gospels. In Luke chapter 21, Je Jesus looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw a poor widow put in two copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all the living that she had. You see this, she didn't have much to sacrifice. And yet, in having little, she gave sacrificially to the Lord. And he noticed. Just sit with that for a minute. Like, he noticed. A lot of times I pray, you know, like I sit down to pray and I just wonder, like, is, is he paying attention to me right now? I know lots of people who go through trials in their life, and they're just like, does God even see what I'm doing right now? He's saying right here, he notices. He notices when we give sacrificially. And, and what, it's not just that he notices, it's then that he lifts up as an example this woman who gave two copper coins. Now she's an example for the rest of history. For anyone who wants to like wrestle with how to follow Jesus. It's incredible. It's just simply incredible, right? So, like, again, getting back to the question, doesn't it seem worth it to just surrender everything to the Lord? One more example. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, this is right before the Last Supper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he sat at table. But when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this ointment might have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, 
Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of me. Yesterday as I was typing this up, I was just like giggling to myself. Like, this is absurd, right? Like, this woman, she comes and she pours this very, where, like, what kind of, where would she get this very expensive oil? We're not totally sure. Some people suggest that it was like her dowry, that, that if she was to get married, this is what she would have given to her husband as a dowry. And here she's sacrificing it. So one of the traditions is that she's sacrificing her future for Jesus. And what does Jesus say? <laughs> Wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of, of her. What is this? Like, what's he saying? He's saying that she now becomes part of the gospel message. Right? This, this thing, the charisma, the proclamation. She's now part of the proclamation of what God has done in the person of Jesus. And so she'll be remembered for her generosity to Jesus forever, everywhere, because now she's part of the divinely inspired word of God in the gospel. This is, it's just incredible. It makes me think of this song. Okay, so this is, we're shifting now to the song that I, I really enjoy. So it's called When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, just to, to look at the lyrics. You know, sometimes we can listen to songs and because we love the melody or the tune, we can almost sometimes like skip over the words, uh, but the words can actually be really powerful. So, so listen to this one. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. The vain delights that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. There's a quote from my favorite preacher. He's a, he's a Protestant preacher, actually. Francis Chan is his name. And uh, this quote, I don't know if it came from him or from someone else. He might have stolen it like I steal a lot of things from other preachers. Uh, nonetheless, this is what he says. He says, Our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. Our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. Why? Because when we succeed at things in life that don't ultimately matter, then we end up becoming prideful. We end up becoming boastful of things that are not Jesus. And when I look at the wondrous cross, the incredible love of Jesus on the cross, how could I boast of anything else compared to what God has done for me in the person of Jesus? The song goes on. See from his head, his hands, his feet, what grief and love flow mingling down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were all the realm of nature mine, the, all the realm, the, the universe, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Right? When I look, when I look at the cross, the crucifix, and I see such fierce love, I just think, how could I give anything except everything? Right? When I have a proper understanding of what's going on here 
It's like, it demands my soul, my life, and my all. You see, what, what we're trying to do here is, is we're trying to, to, to see that Jesus comes to earth and he actually presents to us an invitation, we might say a challenge, I mean certainly a challenge, to think differently, to have our minds transformed so that we look at life differently than the world looks at life. But instead, we want to look at life according to how God looks at life. St. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 12. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, so that you may prove what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see this, if we become conformed to this world, then we're going to think in a kind of way. But what St. Paul is telling us and what Jesus ultimately is telling us is that we don't want to think according to the world, but instead we want to think from a biblical, eternal perspective. So to look at this, like what would it mean to think differently? So if I think from a worldly, temporal perspective, that is to say, I focus on things of this world, what am I going to be asking? I'm going to be saying, what can I get away with? What's, what's the minimum required of me? And okay, that's the minimum. Can I actually sneak by giving less than that? Right? This is a worldly, temporal perspective where my focus is ultimately on me. What can I do? What can I get? Like what? Don't demand too much of me. But rather the biblical, eternal perspective instead asks the question, how much can I give? Ask the question, is it possible actually for me to give more, to invest more in the kingdom of heaven? Because I know that this is a fund that only increases in interest. To ask the question, what do I really need in order to live here? Not, not what do I want or what would I like, but what do I really need? Because if I have what I really need, and some of us for sure, like we all have real needs, Right? So, so no one here is saying that like, you absolutely need to like, make yourself destitute for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. But maybe there's an invitation, again, to just shift your way of asking the question. What do I really need? Because this is the thing. Jesus gave 100% of himself for you and for me. And so when I see this, I just think, i got to do the same. Even if that means, even if that means that sometimes, maybe a lot of times, my giving of myself back to the Lord looks foolish to people. Think of, think of, right, the one who buys the field. He looks foolish to those who don't know that there's a treasure buried in the field. Think of the woman who puts in the two copper coins. She looks foolish compared to everyone else who's just putting in like what they have left over. Or the woman with the ointment, she looks foolish for just throwing away her future. And yet, with all of them, Jesus talks about how there is great reward for each of those people because they see from a different kind of perspective. This is, this is what we're trying to get at, okay? So, so now just one last part before we start to move into uh, the more practical stuff. 
So this is the thing. I recognize that because of Jesus coming to earth and dying on the cross, going to war against the one who has held me captive, I recognize that I have been rescued, that he has saved me, and that his mission is a rescue mission to save as many people as possible. And so once I recognize that I have been rescued or that I am being rescued from the enemy, I then want to contribute to the rescue mission in every way that I possibly can contribute. I, I want to come to him and I say, Jesus, everything I have is at the disposal of your mission. Everything, Jesus. Because this is so incredible. You saved me from misery. You saved me from eternal death. And so, Jesus, I want to help that. I was dead in sin and you gave me new life. And I see how incredible that is. And so, Jesus, I want to help you do the same thing for other people. I want to actually help you give new life to people. And so I give to you, right? And so like, there's this question, how could I hold anything back, right? What? So, so to ask, what do I have to give? Nothing in my life is off limits. What do I have to give? Again, taking into consideration, there'll be two questions from now, taking into consideration certain circumstances of my life. But the question is, what do I have available to give? Right, Jesus, to bring this to prayer, Jesus, how can I help you rescue other people? How can I help you? Tell me. Even in ways that might make me feel uncomfortable. Even in ways that might make me give more of myself than I'd really like to. Right, sure. Some ways of, might not be possible for me because of the various circumstances of my life. But even those I'm willing to take another look at. Even those things where I, like, I hear this and I immediately think, well, not that thing because I, I might even take another look at it. And just sort of ask, well, is it really not that thing? Again, for sure, there are some things that, that some of us cannot, like we need stuff. You with families, you need to provide for your families, absolutely. But the, the, the invitation, right, is to think eternally, to think biblically, and to maybe think about revisiting some of those things. Because, because this is the thing. I've been rescued, and I want other people to be rescued. And he invites me into his campaign of sabotage to undo everything the enemy has done. And as I go, I always have eternity in mind. Because the mission is not only to make people feel good, the mission is to save them. And if they need to be saved, that implies something. It implies that some people won't be saved. Right? Sometimes to think about eternity, so think about this, right? So we've got this rope here. This is your life, this, this yellow piece. Some of you can't see it, and that's actually a really, it's helpful. Uh, this is your life. Some of us are living only for this yellow piece of tape. Like everything, this, look at this, this is your life. Like you were, you were born, and you know, then you, you had, you, your first tooth came in, and so you cried a lot. And uh, then you crawl, you took your first steps, you, you had your birthdays, you, all your friends, some of you got married, you know, all the sacraments that you received. And then you started working, and so it's like, save, 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 and then I really want to enjoy this last little part of my life right here, right? Mm -hmm. And then what happens? And then we die, and there's eternity that just goes on and on and on and on and on and on. And like it keeps going, you guys. Like the rope actually ends, I know. But like in, in reality, right? Eternity doesn't stop. 
It doesn't stop. It goes on and on and on. And the Bible tells us that what we do with this yellow piece of tape is going to determine what eternity is going to be like for the rest of our, for the rest of forever. And so to think about life from that perspective, that one, I myself want to be saved. And so I need to maybe live in a particular kind of response to Jesus so that the rest of my eternity can be incredible rather than miserable. But then on top of that, right, to look at other people and to recognize that they too have an eternity waiting for them. And I, I gotta do everything I can to help them. Because this is, this is the thing. Someone comes up to Jesus and asks him this question. Jesus went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, do you know the answer? How many think you know the answer? A couple. This is, this is big, right? Someone, someone's asking Jesus, how many people are going to be saved? What does he say? Strive to enter by the narrow door. For many, many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able to. Many. Parallel passage in the Gospel of Matthew Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. And the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. This is why this is all so important. Because I want to enter through the narrow way, and I want you to enter by the narrow way. And yes, that will require sacrifice, real sacrifice. No doubt. Jesus knows that. We all know it. And yet, the return is life compared to destruction. What's not worth it? St. Paul, in the letter to the Philippians, chapter 3, for, for a lot of us, this was the second reading we heard at Mass this weekend. He says, One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I strain forward. He says, One thing. Think about this. What are the goals for your life? St. Paul says, I have one goal. Heaven. Because nothing else cares, nothing else matters. Heaven. Life that goes on and on and on and on. Jesus says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? What does it profit a person to have so many pleasant experiences on earth if in the end, they end up going through the gate that is wide and easy? What does it profit? It doesn't. What are the goals for your life? The challenge here is to have one goal for your life. Sure, if you get to enjoy other things, great, praise God. But hopefully enjoying those other things doesn't take you away from the one goal, which is God's upward calling, right? He wants us to become like him. What other trade-off is there? There isn't one, right? This is, this is the response, right? Like, so, like... How do we, we have to, we have to keep this in mind. We have to keep this in mind that I'm responding to this kind of a love, to this kind of a fierce God who comes to go to war for me, to set me free. And in response, 
I can't help but giving everything because there are still yet more promises that he wants to give me. The culminating in me becoming like him, sharing in his divinity. It's like, it's, it's a deal that is too good to pass up. Okay, now we need to quickly move through phase two, which is the need to be concrete and practical. Right, this has all been sort of theoretical. Now we got to be practical. Like, what can I do? So here's here's an example. So imagine for a minute, right? So you can you can close your eyes if you want to as I talk, or you can look up at the screen. There's going to be some some things that can hopefully help you imagine. But imagine you're stuck in a cave. You wake up one day and you're stuck in a cave, or you're stuck in a dark place. You don't actually know that it's a cave because it's so dark, and you can't like, you can't see anything. You can't see your hand in front of you, and you like you try to you try to feel around for walls, right? And uh, and see if maybe there's like a way out of this dark room because it's like a suffocating kind of darkness. And you try to feel around and what happens? You can't find a way out, right? And for some of us, maybe that's not such a bad thing because you enjoy the adventure, you love the challenge of it, whatever. But nonetheless, at some point for all of us, we find that there's no way out. Like I'm not getting out of this cave. And then what happens? I start to panic, right? Because why? Because I start to get hungry and I start to get thirsty, right? So for some of us, you might have to imagine like days go by where you're stuck in this dark place, you can't see anything, you can't hear anything. All you can do is try to feel around for walls and sometimes you might like seem like you're getting somewhere but then you're just like, I think I've been here before and I don't actually know because I can't see. Right? You're stuck in this place and so eventually what happens? Give up and you're just sort of like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna die. I'm, just, I'm stuck here. And then Suddenly, someone comes up to you and they have a torch in their hand and they say, hey, they call you by name. Hey, I know the way out of here. Come with me. It's like, well, so first I have to sort of like, do I believe this person? Or is he actually like leading me off to another place to like kill me and eat me because he doesn't have any food either, right? <laughs> but if I believe him, right, if I believe him, then I actually have to follow I have to actually put one foot in front of the other because if I was like, this is awesome, and then he starts walking and I just stay where I'm at, eventually I'm going to lose sight of the torch and I'm just going to be stuck back in the same place. But I actually have to move and I actually have to follow him the whole way. Right? So continuing with the imagination, uh, or yeah, the, the scene, uh, like as you're going, you're walking and you start to see like other tunnels forming and you see a tunnel and it seems like there's daylight at the end of the tunnel and you're just like, this guy's going off in this direction. You're like, wait, wait, there's, there's daylight over here. And he's like, yeah, I know, but that's not the way. you got to keep going. And it's like, no, there's daylight. I'm going toward the daylight. And as you start walking toward the daylight, you fall in a pit that you didn't see. And you can't get out of the pit. And so he comes to you and he's like, I told you, this isn't the way. Let me help you out. Now follow me. Right, and this might happen a bunch of times because it's a long way out of the it's a long way out of the cave. And so you're just like, does this guy really know where he's going? Or is he just like walking in circles? I feel like we've been here before. It's like, no, like, if I really believe that he is the, has the way out of the cave, I have to follow him the entire time. Now, this is the thing. Jesus is the one with the torch. And it's not just that he knows the way. It's that he says, I am the way. Follow me. And if I believe in him, that he can actually lead me to life, that he can lead me to a place where God's promises to me are fulfilled in all of their fullness, then I got to follow him and not just follow him, but I got to follow him the whole way. Not so it's like, yeah, no, Jesus, I'll follow you. Wait, 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 what are you talking? No, I'm going to go this way instead. No, like I got to follow him the whole way because he leads me to life. And any other way I go is going to end up in a pit or back in darkness. 
I must follow him and actually move. Right? Like, this is, this is super... Okay, back to St. Peter. So St. Peter, uh, remember we, we read verses 3 and 4. Now St. Peter says this in verses 5 through 11. For this very reason, make every effort. Do you hear this? Every effort. Every effort. A lot of times people say, well, you shouldn't talk about how we just got to try harder. Because, you know, that makes it seem like we, gotta, we, gotta, we can do it outside of God's grace. No, it's implied. Remember, this is the fourth part of the kerygma. It's already implied and it's taken for granted that you know that God has granted to you every grace that you need. Right? So when he says make every effort, there's an implication that you are cooperating with the grace of God. It's that Jesus lives within you. And so when you make every effort and you're actually able to do something good in your life towards holiness, that is ultimately Jesus living in you. So I think we actually need to talk more about how we can put forth more effort in our relationships with Jesus. St. Peter says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these things are yours and abound, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these things is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be the more zealous to confirm your call and election. For if you do this, you will never fall. So there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'd love a Vatican document to come out with this kind of thing nowadays. What is this? Faith. Faith is a belief in Jesus that leads to action, that leads me to move. What is virtue? Virtue is good habits, but not good according to my mind and my heart, but good according to what God wants. And so I want to ask him, God, what good habits do you want me to form? Knowledge is a study of worthwhile things. Not things that ultimately don't matter, but a study of worthwhile things. Self-control, resisting the temptation to sin, putting forth energy toward temptation to sin and resisting it, even avoiding the temptations. Steadfastness, a perseverance, right? It's a long way out of the cave. For some of us, we have a long time to go that we're going to be alive. To persevere. For some of us, the end of our days are coming, but there's this thing called final perseverance. That we have to finally persevere. That as death approaches, we don't allow ourselves to become afraid of it. But instead, we live in such a way that we look forward to it. Because when we die, we will see Jesus and receive all of the promises that he has for us. That's steadfastness. Godliness. To hold him in reverence and worship. To think about, how can I honor him? How can I worship him more perfectly? Brotherly affection, that is to desire salvation for the people around me, encouraging them and helping them along the way. And then love, we're going to look at this in a minute, but to choose what is good for other people. Because after all, we don't want to be short-sighted. We want to keep our eyes on the long vision. We want to keep our eyes on the thing that lasts forever. There's this prayer in the book of Deuteronomy uh, that... Uh, Someone comes up to Jesus and asks him, which is the greatest of the commandments? And he says this prayer, the Shema prayer. So it's not the entire verse, but the Shema is the first part. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. 
And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. Right, so if you were to talk to someone who was practicing their Jewish faith, their Jewish religion, they would all have the Shema memorized. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. They would have that memorized. Why? Because it is the great commandment, and it summarizes the entire book of the law in, uh, in the Old Testament. And so we want to look at this. What does it mean to love God with your heart, soul, and strength? Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Imagine this, whispering this prayer, first thing into a newborn baby's ears. That's the perspective that they look at. As a person is about to die, you think of what's the last thing I want to say to them. Shema Yisrael. And in the middle, I have post-it notes all over my house so that I can remember this, that I am to love the Lord my God with all of my heart, with all of my soul, and with all of my strength. This word Shema, it means listen and obey. Listen up, Israel, and hear me. Never forget, to love is to will the good of the other. We are other-focused. Above all, we are choosing what is good for the purposes of God and for His kingdom, because that is where our true homeland is. To love God with our heart, that is the place of decision, which means it is not primarily focused on my feelings or emotions. We all know this, that our, our feelings and our emotions can sometimes actually lead us astray. Not that they're necessarily bad, but they can lead us to places that lead us away from loving God and loving earthly things, right? But instead, to love God with my heart is that I decide to do this. I make a, an act of my will to love him and to serve him, to love God with my soul. This is the place of my personality, right, where I have my idiosyncrasies. We're not, we're not all meant to be robots. We're not all meant to be like cookie-cutter Christians, like this is how every single Christian should act. There are, sure, there are some standards that we need to follow, but, but at the same time, the Lord loves you individually. And so there are things about you that the Lord loves that are not present in me. And so for me to love the Lord with my soul, it might look a little bit different than how you are going to love the Lord with your soul. It's always at the service of being obedient to his commandments. But at the same time, to love him with your individuality. What is it that makes you unique? And how can you, in your uniqueness, love him? To love him with your strength. This is the source of energy. We might say exclamation points, right? Love him. Love him with everything that you have available for the task. Right? Jesus, all of my resources are available to you. Everything that I have, whether, whether it's a gift for speaking, a gift of money, whether it's a gift of strength, whether it's a gift of organizing things, whether it's a gift of helping individual people, whether it's a gift of filling in a gap with a group of people, whether it's a gift of, of making things and being creative, whether it's a gift of preaching, a gift of teaching, a gift of studying and sharing that study with other people, a gift of living celibately, whatever it may be, whatever I have, Lord, I give to you. 
because I want to love you with my strength. And then in the Gospels, Jesus adds to love the Lord with your mind. This is the place of knowledge and reason, because after all, you can't love what you don't know or who you don't know. And so we want to let our way of thinking be formed by his way of thinking. So again, all of this is at the service of being obedient to his commandments. Okay, now, uh, to get very practical as we finish up here with our last few minutes, uh, Peter, so we want to ask the question, how did the first Christians do it? How did the earliest Christians, like that first generation, the apostles and those who came after them, how did they live their lives as followers of Jesus? How did they respond to what God had done in the person of Jesus? So in Acts chapter 2, there's this great scene of Pentecost. So Acts chapter 1, Jesus is there. He tells them to go to the upper room and pray and wait for them to receive power from on high. And when they receive power from on high, then they would be his witnesses, beginning in Jerusalem, then to Judea, then to all the earth. They're praying. They settle some things up with their household. And then in Acts chapter 2, Pentecost happens. The Holy Spirit descends upon them like fire. It seems like fire is falling upon them. And when this fire falls upon them, they begin speaking in different languages. Except as they speak in different languages, somehow they're all able to understand each other, even though they don't naturally speak those languages. It's this incredible moment. People make fun of them. Peter's like, no, 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 let me explain what's going on here. And then he preaches this sermon He preaches about Jesus, and it ends with him talking about this Jesus, whom you crucified, God has made Lord and Christ. So he preaches this sermon, and then in Acts 2.37, it says this, Now when they heard this, that is those who were ridiculing them, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what do we do? We might say they realized they were overwhelmed with the gospel. And they said, how do I surrender myself? What do I do now? And what does Peter say? He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you shall receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is to you and your children and to all that are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. Repent, turn away from sin, and be baptized. Move toward God. Repent, turn away, be baptized. Move in that direction so that you can receive the promises. He goes on to say, He testified with many other words and exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Can you imagine if at Easter... We had 3,000 people who wanted to become Catholic. Just imagine. Imagine. And yet I wonder, I wonder if we all lived in this place of response to the Lord, if we might not get something like that. So then what happens? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They devoted themselves. What does it mean to be devoted? Devotion is... A love, loyalty, or enthusiasm for a person, activity, or cause. So maybe there's just this first reflection question. Are you devoted to the Lord? Do you have an enthusiasm toward your faith? I know many of you do, right? You're coming five Mondays in a row during Lent. But after this, are you going to have a kind of loyalty to the Lord, an enthusiasm 
for going to pray, an enthusiasm for reading the Word of God, an enthusiasm for sharing life with other disciples of Jesus. Because that's what they had. They had a devotion to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and the prayers. This is what the early disciples did. We can look at this. Like, what, what, is, what does this mean? It means, ultimately, there are four essential elements of life for everyone who wants to be a disciple of Jesus. Four essential elements. Devotion to the apostles' teaching. What does that mean? It means an enthusiasm and a love for reading the Word of God. Even if you don't understand everything. And I know that there's a large group of people in here that when you were kids, you were discouraged from reading the Bible. I release you from that. <laughs> I release you from that. And I say, on the contrary, we want to have a devotion to this. And I know, I know this, that most people, when they pick up the Bible, they just think, I don't understand anything. That's okay. You can always begin new. And I always encourage starting with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's the story of Jesus. Pick one of those up. But then also to have a devotion to the doctrines of the church. Right? We're part of a community, a church that Jesus established. And so to have a devotion to this, an enthusiasm for learning, not what do I think, what do I agree with or disagree with, but what does the church teach doctrinally? And having an enthusiasm, a loyalty to that church. Next, a devotion to fellowship. That is to say, to sharing life with other disciples, where sometimes we might get together and talk about the good things of the Lord in an intentional way. How is your prayer going? How is your reading of the Word of God going? What's been striking you lately in the homilies? What's, like, what's been going on in your, your spiritual life, your walk with Jesus? But then other times, there might just simply be time where you just get together because you know these other people are really going for it. And you just like enjoy spending time with each other because you don't have to worry about like, well, I know they're not going to try to lead me into sin. And I know that they're going for it. And I know that I need encouragement or just like support. And so like, I just want to be friends with them, right? Like that, that there's this, this aspect of fellowship that like, we don't always have to talk about like the Catholic things. Sometimes I think we do, but we don't always have to, right? We can just like enjoy time with each other. It's just such a great gift to have a devotion to that an intentionality to getting together with other disciples of Jesus to share life with them. To have a devotion to the breaking of the bread. This is the way the early church spoke of the Eucharist, of the Mass. Do you have a devotion to the Mass? Thinking to yourself, again, getting back to the question, what if it's true? What if it's true that the bread and the wine really, in fact, change into the body and blood of Jesus? And that when you get to receive Holy Communion, you are receiving God into you. Like, what if that's true? Can you think of anything better to do? I can't think of anything. Like, I can't think of a single thing. Right? Like, so to have a devotion for that, are you enthusiastic? Are you loyal to attending Mass? Like, not only every week. That's a given every Sunday or Saturday evening. But even to even ask the question, like, is it possible for me to, like, even go extra? Like, to, to think about, like, again, this is the body and blood of Jesus. Is it possible? And again, like, I'm not trying to, like, guilt you into coming, but it's been so awesome having 50, 60, 70, 80 people at our, our, our Monday night mass. We have that mass every Monday. And you're all proving that you're available for it. 
like the body and blood of Jesus. Full disclosure, I'm gonna be gone next week so I'll be at my Christmas mass in Crookston, but like we have this mass every Monday evening at 5.30 and then Wednesday evenings at 5.30 at Assumption, and then actually Tuesday and Thursdays at St. Richard's at 5.30. And then Saturday we have mass at 8 and noon, and we also have morning mass every day of the week actually at 8 o'clock. Like, just to, to, to just sort of entertain the question, like, is it possible for me to actually grow in my devotion for the Eucharist? Is it possible? But then not just the Eucharist, the other sacraments. Right? With the other sacrament that we can receive as often as we need to is reconciliation. Do I have a devotion for actually repenting of my sins to the priest so that Jesus, through the priest, can forgive me and I can, I can be restored in my relationship with him? Do I have a devotion to that, a loyalty, a love for it? Right? Like, to grow in this, and confession is offered a half an hour before all of those masses that I just mentioned. And then there are other churches in the archdiocese, so that if you don't want to go to like Father Lucas or myself, you can go to another church. There's lots of, like, this is the beautiful thing about living in a metropolis, is that the sacraments are so available to anybody who wants to receive them that all you got to do is just look, right? Are you having a devotion? Is it possible to grow in your devotion to that? And then lastly, a devotion to prayer. Do you have a devotion to going and being quiet with the Lord every day, spending that time? Where sure, maybe, and, and this is the case for me, most days, when I say, I say I pray for a holy hour every morning, an hour, most days, I don't recognize that God talks to me. Right? I don't recognize that I get anything out of it necessarily. But that's not the point. The point is that God wants to spend time with me, and I want to spend time with him. Because I have an enthusiasm, a loyalty, a love for him. And so I just like, how could I not pray every day? How could I not go out of my way to spend that time with him? So this, this, this ultimately gets, gets us to the most important question of all, right? It's this question I asked you last week, but I gotta, we got to ask it again, right? <laughs> Do you believe it? This is the gospel, brothers and sisters. This is what we profess to believe in as Christians, as Catholic Christians. Do you believe it? Will you surrender everything to follow Jesus? Are you prepared to contribute to the rescue mission of Jesus Christ in any way possible? Are you willing to be ever more zealous to confirm your call and election, as Peter calls us to do? Are you willing to shift your way of thinking, no longer asking what you can get away with, but instead asking, what can I give away for the mission? What's possible for me to give away? Will you commit to loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Will you become devoted to the Word of God, to the doctrines of the Church, to the fellowship, to the sacraments, above all the Eucharist, and to prayer? Do you believe it? Let's finish with prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Jesus, we hear your call. We hear you loud and clear. We pray for courage, Jesus. Make us courageous to say yes. 
pray for you, Jesus, to overwhelm us with your love, your fierce love. Jesus, I pray for these people, these good people that you have called to follow you. I pray for them. I pray for myself. You would convict us, Jesus. You'd help us to see differently than the rest of the world sees, to think differently than the rest of the world thinks. Jesus, share your mind with us so that we can think eternally and that we may be willing to surrender even whatever the cost may be. Jesus, I pray for your Holy Spirit to descend upon us, upon these people, upon me. Send your Holy Spirit to teach us all things that are worthwhile and to remind us of everything that you said and taught, to remind us of your incredible promise to share life with you forever in heaven. Give us your Holy Spirit, Jesus. In your name, Jesus, I cast out all evil spirits that are lingering, all spirits of compromise, all spirits of doubt, all spirits of discouragement and despair, all spirits of fear and insecurity, Jesus. I cast them out in your name, your holy and powerful name, Jesus. And I ask you instead to fill them with your spirit of courage, your spirit of counsel, your spirit of piety and devotion. Jesus, give us your Holy Spirit in every possible way so that we can not only say yes, but so that we can run after you to follow you out of the cave, out of the darkness, and into the light. Give us the gift, Jesus, to feed off of you and to drink from the life-giving streams that flow from within you. Jesus, continue to rescue us and inspire us and show us who it is, Jesus, that you want us to rescue. So that it's not just a matter of following you, but it's even a matter of being partners with you in this great sabotage, this great mission of rescue. Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you.